you dream of a classroom where learning is natural? Can we inspire students to lifelong learning? What exactly is the purpose of an education? Inspiring students to be curious, independent, creative, innovative, deep thinking, confident, proactive, collaborative, determined, educated. Rise to the challenge of changing the world. This is teaching. This is learning. This is who we are. Welcome to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast. What is the best way to get a flight into space if you are not currently an astronaut? How serious is space tourism? And how can we feed that inner drive to explore? Today's podcast brings us face-to-face with exciting possibilities. And astronauts who who have been in orbit, I think all of them come back and say that after seeing that site, their lives are forever changed. And so we want to bring that to, to the masses at a price that's affordable. I mean, right now, if you've got $50 million or something ridiculous like that, you can go up to the International Space Station or go ride on a Soyuz rocket, but there's no other way to get to space right now. So pioneers like Virgin Galactic are, are trying to get, uh, get that price down and, and make it accessible to the masses. Today's episode is about exploration, which reminds me of a quote by T.S. Eliot. He says, we shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. That's a great commentary on getting perspective. But Eliot is not just suggesting that we get perspective without exploration. Instead, he is saying to get your rear end up off the couch and go see some new scenery and that'll give you some great perspective. So you better strap yourself in with a five-point harness for today's episode. We are blasting off with Jason Divineer. Jason loves to explore. For fun, he might hop on a plane to Sydney for lunch or an afternoon at the Sydney Opera House. During college, he spent time driving around the Mojave Desert in Southern California for the DARPA Grand Challenge team at his university. Somewhere along the way, Jason became enamored with space travel. So in addition to exploring the desert in Southern California or flying all over the world, his ultimate goal is to travel in space. This goal drove him to some interesting lengths, but you'll have to listen to the rest of the podcast to satisfy your curiosity. But before I jump in, Jason wanted me to point out that in our interview, he's sharing his personal opinions. We mentioned Scaled Composites and Virgin Galactic, but he's not speaking in any way for those companies. He's only sharing his own personal experience and perspectives. So with that, let's jump in. So my guest today is Jason Divineer. Jason is a pilot, and he got his start in flying, uh, interestingly enough, as an EMT uh, for 14 years, and he flew on medevac flights and decided he liked the flying much better than he liked the EMT part, and he ended up uh, getting into that. And he's currently now working as an engineer on Spaceship Two with Scaled Composites, who also uh, is a contractor for... Uh, Virgin Galactic. He travels a lot and he's been to lots of interesting places. So Jason, why don't we start with the EMT thing? How did you get into that and how'd you get into flying? Oh, so in college, I took a course at night to become uh, an EMT and I was able to do that in my sophomore year. 
And then I started doing campus EMS and uh, quickly became one of the heads of that and uh, had a lot of fun. So then I started doing ground ambulance volunteering um, and had fun. And then I started volunteering on medevac uh, in the Pittsburgh area. And they've got a great medevac system. So I got to fly in helicopters, which was a lot of fun as well. And I've just been doing it as a volunteer. I've never actually been paid for it. It's just one of those fun things to do on the side. And it's been very useful because I, I find a lot of uh, aspects of my life where people are needing help and no one else is around. Like if I, I, I you mentioned I fly a lot and I, I do. And this past year I've had three medical emergencies on various flights, which is very, <laughs> very atypical. And each time there's not been a doctor on board. So I've been like the only one to, to get up and, and help somebody, which is always rewarding. Wow, that is excellent. And so when you got involved in the medevac side of things, how long did it take you before you realized you wanted to be a pilot or you wanted to start flying yourself? Well, I've kind of always known that I wanted to be a pilot. I've loved aviation from ever since I was little. I was doing model rockets. I went to space camp three times. I was an intern at Boeing in college and, and really loved being around all the airplanes up in Everett where they make the 747 and the 777. And then being able to get on helicopters, I hadn't been on helicopters before, and uh, that was just an amazing experience. So I, I did that as much as I could, both for the love of helping people and for the love of aviation. But then there was one day where we were weight restricted and we, had, um, we needed somebody to sit up front with the pilot because the patient was pretty obese and I just threw up my hand. I was like, okay, I'll go up front. And I'm like, wait, why am I wanting to go up front? <laughs> the patient's back there. And I was more interested in what the pilot was doing up there. So uh, I got my pilot's license and I, I've been flying ever since. So how did you get into the space of being an engineer? Cause that was also an interesting story. It sounds like. Yeah. So, uh, my path has been far from direct. I started off after college. Uh, I, I graduated with a degree in business and a minor in physics. And I started off uh, as a consultant for IBM. And I did that for a little while. And then I really liked the medical thing. So I thought maybe I'd want to go to med school. So I did a two-year post-bac program at Georgetown. Uh, and by the time I got done with that, I was not really feeling the medical thing as much. So um, I went and worked for... Uh, a company, the Discovery Channel. I was doing uh, marketing and advertising for them. And eventually I just got really fed up with what I was working on. I was doing really cool stuff, uh, working on shows like Mythbusters and some cool Science Channel stuff. And then one day they put me on TLC and I was doing shows like Say Yes to the Dress and other <laughs> other wedding type shows. Uh, I was getting a little frustrated. And then they put me on a show called uh, Toddlers and Tiaras, which wasn't my favorite. <laughs> so I worked on that for a few months. And then they put me on another show called Honey Boo Boo. And I just, I, I couldn't stand it. So I, I left and I went out to Mojave uh, because I really liked space tourism. I wanted to be a part of space tourism. And I was finding that it was hard to get a job in that industry because I don't have an engineering degree. So I went out there and after applying for two years, I, I was like, I'm just going to go out there and make them interview me. So I, <laughs> I sat at the airport cafe there. It was called Voyager. I, I went in there every day for five days. And every day I'd also like email the CEO. I'm like, hey, you don't know me, but I really want to work for your company and I want an interview. And you know, they'd never respond. But by the fifth day, they, they were like, okay, fine, we'll interview you. So they interviewed me after hours, and then I came in the next day for some more interviews. And then a couple of days later, I had a job offer as an engineer at scale. It was liaison engineer, which is not as technical as, as a design engineer, but it was a skill set that I possessed, and it was, uh, it was something I was really looking forward to. So that's kind of how I got into that space. And, and I've just kind of proven myself incrementally over time by taking on more and more technical roles. So 
So out of curiosity, I mean, I, I've done just enough uh, poking around to be uh, dangerous, but not enough to really know anything. Uh, when you went looking in the space tourism direction, did you look at other places like, I don't know, Armadillo Aerospace or any of the other ones that are kind of out there on their own? You know, I was attracted to, to Virgin Galactic's company just because I've seen what a, a scale had done with Spaceship One and I knew them the best. And I had been to Mojave once before in 2008. I went there with a friend, you know, Burt Rutan, and I always thought it would be really cool to work for Burt Rutan. Um, by the time I, I ended up at Scale, he had already retired, but uh, that's kind of what led me in that direction. What have you kind of done at Virgin Galactic then? So as an engineer, what's your job like on a daily basis? What do you do? Also, so it's important to note that I work for Scaled and Scaled's contractor of Virgin. So I'm not doing anything for Virgin per se, but my job was uh, the liaison engineer between Scaled and Virgin. So Scaled's creating a spaceship too, a design built and we're testing it. And Virgin was uh, setting up to create more spaceship twos and more White Knight twos, which is the carrier aircraft. And they have a lot of engineers. They had 80, 100 engineers, and they all had questions on how things worked. And so I would be the main focal point that all the engineers would come to to ask questions uh, about the ship, and the systems, why we did things the way we did, uh, what materials are made out of, any, any of that stuff. I like to think of myself as the technical concierge for the program. So whatever they needed, um, I, would, I would try to accommodate for them. So could you maybe explain for us a little bit who Scaled Composites is and how they got involved with Virgin Galactic? Sure. So uh, Scaled is a company that's been in operation for over 30 years, and they are a rapid prototyping aircraft company. So they make airplanes out of carbon fiber quickly, and the goal is really just to make one. They don't do commercial production of aircraft. So we've done a lot of really famous uh, aircraft like Voyager, which was the first aircraft to fly unrefueled around the world uh, with, with Dick Rutan back in the 80s. We did Spaceship One, which in 2004 won the Ansari X Prize for being the first commercial company to put uh, people in space. And after, after that, I think Richard Branson came and said, hey, why don't you make me a bigger version of this and let's send, let's send people to space and space tourism. And I think our company was on board, so we, we started designing Spaceship Two, and, and uh, we've been working on that since 2005. So... Help me understand a little bit. What is the goal of the Spaceship One and Spaceship Two? Like, how far out into space are you planning to go? What's the goal in that? All right. So I think I'll talk about space tourism in general, suborbital space tourism, because I think everybody's kind of doing it differently. So I don't want to speak for Virgin. But in general, the idea is to get people above the Kármán line, which is 100 kilometers or 62 miles. Uh, that's internationally recognized as, as the boundary to space. Uh, the U.S. recognizes 50 miles as the boundary to space. So anybody who's been above 50 miles gets their astronaut wings. And what we want to do is put people up into suborbital space so that they can go up, they can float around the cabin, they can see the curvature of the Earth, see the blackness of space, and and hopefully that's a life-changing experience for them. Shows them you know we're all one planet, and and astronauts who who have been in orbit, I think all of them come back and say that. After seeing that site, their lives are forever changed, and so we want to want to bring that to to the masses at a price that's affordable. I mean, right now, if you've got fifty million dollars or something ridiculous like that, you can go up to the International Space Station or go ride on a Soyuz rocket. But there's no other way to get to space right now. So pioneers like Virgin Galactic are are trying to get uh, get that price down and, and make it accessible to the masses. So another question that I, I have, you know, just being on the edge of this space, 
how cl- what are the differences between some of the goals of like SpaceX and Virgin Galactic? So SpaceX is a really cool company and they don't they don't deal with suborbital anything. They are an orbital company. So right now they do resupply missions for the International Space Station. They launch satellites for other operators, but they've got the capability to go all the way into orbit. What Virgin Galactic and other suborbital space companies are doing is uh, just trying to get up to sub suborbital areas. And there's a big difference there. You only need to go about uh, 2,500 miles an hour to get up to 100 kilometers, but you need to go at escape velocity 17,500 miles an hour to get into orbit. And that takes a lot more power, a lot more fuel, bigger engines. Um, so it's, a, it's really a whole different ballpark. You can't really compare them. Right now, SpaceX doesn't do human uh, spaceflight, but they're working on their capsule to do that soon. Interesting. I guess another question that I have then, um, I'll just ask it and you can tell me whether you can answer it or not. Do you know anything about like future plans that you can talk to us about, you know, like where's the space tourism industry going? Like what is the ultimate near-term and far-term goal for that? I'll give you my opinion where I think the industry as a whole is going. Um, I think that the first step is, is really important and that's getting people to a suborbital altitude safely. Safety is the key here. And once you can do that, rather than going straight up to 100 kilometers, it's, it's not that different to kind of point the nose over a little bit and go somewhere instead of going up and landing at the same airport. If you can get up that high, you can then go to New York really quickly or go pretty much anywhere. The further you want to go, obviously, the higher you need to go. And if you wanted to go to Australia or something, you'd need to get up into an orbital speed. But um, I think that point to point is going to be what follows and then eventually orbital uh, so people can stay up for a while. There's uh, companies out there that want to build space hotels so people can go up for a week or more. And then e- Elon Musk's plan is to go to Mars and colonize Mars. So it's really just this is the stepping stone. Um, and it's it's a very early on in an industry that I, I believe is going to be really big. So do you know anything about the the history of this industry? I mean, when did we go from you know, sort of the the NASA and, uh, you know, the, the government-funded space programs to the private-funded, and why are we kind of there? Well, so we, we saw when they retired uh, the space shuttle. I mean, NASA's focusing on a lot of things, but human spaceflight isn't something they've, they've put a lot of emphasis on, I guess. Um, we're currently without the capability to send humans into space without the Russians, and that's that's not cool. So I think it, the private industry needs to step up and fill in the gaps where the government can't. And now, I mean, you've got Orbital, you've got um, SpaceX, you've got a lot of companies that are vying and have the ability to get to space right now, not with people yet, but for, for example, for international space station uh, resupplies. So I think that it's really nice that this is getting privatized because safety is going to be paramount for that as well because nobody's going to ride on a rocket that's not safe. No one's going to want to send their very expensive satellite up on a rocket that's not safe. So it'll just keep getting safer and cheaper, which benefits everybody. So let's bring this back home then. Why are you interested in us having a, a space tourism flight? Why do you want to go up? Uh, well, like I mentioned earlier, I went to space camp as a kid, and I've always just, like like so many other people, I've dreamed of being an astronaut. And, you know, I was sitting at my marketing job in uh, in Chicago, and I was like, I'm not going to get to achieve the things in life I want unless I go and actually 
work my butt off to try to make them a reality. So I decided to, to go out to California and, and try to help move along the cause. I mean, it's a, it's a huge, huge team effort, and I'm a tiny, tiny part of that. But at least I'm going out there and trying to, to help move it forward. <laughs> to the to the tune of going out and spending five days in a cafe trying to get the CEO to pay attention to your uh, to your emails. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it worked. I mean, it was either that or I could go uh, try to make a lot of money and then have enough money to buy a ticket. But I eventually, you know, I don't know how I'll get to space. I will get to space, but I'm still figuring out how to actually make that happen. <laughs> Well, so something else that you mentioned earlier, and we'll just take a little uh, side detour here for a while, because in addition to being interested in space tourism, you also like to travel around the world. Tell us a little more about that. Uh, okay, I love being on airplanes, uh, whatever, private, commercial, anything. And I think back in 2009, I was like, you know, I really, I saw the benefits of having status with airlines, and I said, I'd really like to get the top status that I could get with with United. I picked United because they were um, their hubs in Chicago, and it was like September. And the, to get their high status, it's called 1K. You have to either fly 100 segments or 100,000 miles. And I knew I didn't think I could fly 100,000 miles, but I was kind of getting into the whole sphere of trying to find mistake airfares. And uh, I was able to find a way to get 100 flights in three months, uh, which was kind of insane and grueling. But, like, for example, um, there was a flight from Milwaukee to Pittsburgh on some other low-cost carrier, and United matched it. And it was $88. But what United didn't do was limit how many uh, segments you could take to get there. So for $88, I went from Milwaukee to Chicago to Harrisburg to Washington, D.C. to Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh back to D.C., D.C., somewhere else, somewhere else to Chicago, Chicago, Milwaukee. And I did that. I left at 6 a.m. and I got back at 11 p.m. So I got eight flights in the day for 88 bucks or $11 a flight. So I did that, <laughs> did that three days in a row to get 24 flights for about 250 bucks, which was just grueling because they were all little regional jets and you know not, not very comfortable. But... Um, I did that a lot. I would do some to San Diego. I found like a San Diego for $230 out of Milwaukee. So something like Milwaukee, Chicago, San Francisco, LA, San Diego, and then same thing back. Now get you eight segments as well. Um, so I just did that until I got to a hundred thousand or, or sorry, a hundred segments. Um, and I got my one K status, which was really excited. And I decided never again to do a hundred flights in a year because that was ridiculous. So <laughs> since then I've switched over to flying internationally because then I can just fall asleep or watch a movie and, and get to a hundred thousand miles that way. And I, I have a lot of fun doing it. Sometimes I'll find a really cheap airfare and I'll go to Australia for the weekend or for the day. And people always say, are you insane for wanting to do that? But I really like it because once you get this, you know, once you have status with an airline, they treat you well and you usually get upgraded. And if you're going far, there's usually like a live flat bed or something. And then you can kind of relax and just think about things and reflect on life and look out the window and see the world. And um, it's, a, it's a really fun, relaxing thing for me that I usually can't get other people to go with me on. <laughs> <laughs> so now I can't, I can't help uh, asking this. Our daughter's in Australia. She's, she lives in Perth, actually. And what occurred to me as you said some of these things is if you go out somewhere for like a day or for a weekend and you come back, do you work out all the details? Like I assume you have a passport and, you know, do you get visas for all these places or do you, you know, typically go to places where we where it doesn't require a visa? 
Yeah, I typically try to go to places that don't require visas. Australia, you do need a visa, but United takes care of that for me when I make the reservation because of my status. So I don't really know how to do that on my own. They just they just do it. So a typical places I'll go is like Germany or London, uh, Australia. I went to Japan last year. I did go to China a couple years ago for a week, and that was that was a big headache to get a visa. Yeah, I went to Abu Dhabi last year for a zero dollar fare because there was a mistake for like an hour and a half on their website and all I had to pay was taxes. So I think I went for like <laughs> 400 bucks round trip. I was in economy cause it was a, it wasn't uh, United. So I didn't have status, but it was fun. And what made that flight go faster is before I was saying there's sometimes medical emergencies on board, like three hours after we took off of Abu Dhabi coming back to LA on the 17 hour flight, this woman got really nervous and took every a, a pill from every bottle she had in her purse Whoa. So she had 14 different bottles of pills and she didn't speak english and she was acting really weird and saying you know pointing at her chest she didn't speak english um, there's no doctor support and there was no one who spoke her language so i had to get on a satellite phone with a doctor and a translator so we could figure out what was going on <laughs> she eventually she just said she was really nervous about flying and she didn't know which medication it took to, to take so she just took them all so <laughs> I, helped, I, I was with her for about three and a half hours, which made the flight go by really quickly. Wow. Do you just like going to see new things? What is the drive inside for, for the flying, for the tourism, for, you know, for the space thing? What is that? Oh, I just love adventures. I love new experiences. I don't like sitting still. I'm very ADD. And if I'm not doing something all the time, I get stir crazy. <laughs> so I need, I need to I need to go somewhere and do something. I understand. I am actually yeah. the same way. I I I have not gone out to uh, to travel out like that. For me, I I go out and I explore things near 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 me, or I go out and I build something. So that's kind mm-hmm. of my escape for that. Yeah. So let's go back quite a ways because I'm actually curious. How did you end up being an EMT? What was your experience? You know, how did you get to be like you are? And one of the ways we do that is just to, to back up back up the clock. So do you remember much about being in grade school or middle school, high school? Like, what was it like being a, um, a grade um, a K-5 student? Like, what was it like in fourth grade for you? Um, yeah, I remember all that really well. I My parents got divorced in third grade, and after that, I moved around quite a bit. So I never stayed at a school longer than two or three years which made it hard to have friends. I think I was pretty nerdy in school and didn't uh, didn't fit in with most people. So I spent more time alone and did things like build rockets with my dad and fly little RC airplanes and uh, do all that kind of stuff. And I think that shaped me a lot. I went to boarding school, which was something pretty different than most people's experiences. And I think that was a really good experience that forced me to kind of grow up when I was at 13 or 14, um, just like being in college, except there's a little more restrictions. But that was that was really good preparation for later on in life. So I'm curious about the boarding school thing. Um, I yeah. can't help it. I, I went to a boarding school in high school, and I'm, I'm curious, do you feel like that experience gave you an early independence maybe? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it was a good experience. It was tough. You know, I, even at boarding school, I didn't fit in. I got picked on a lot, made fun of. Um, I was pretty nerdy. Like, I wanted to make a radio station for our school, and we didn't didn't have one. So they, they told me that they would pay for it if I built the board, like the uh, the transmitter. So I had to learn how to do that 
And I helped one of the uh, faculty helped me with that. And so I built this radio station. It was all of uh, one watt, which I think was the maximum allowed without a license. <laughs> so it would go about 300 feet. <laughs> it wouldn't go anywhere, but um, we, we lived in a quad. So it would, it would get to all the dorm rooms, which was neat. So that actually became really popular. And I didn't know why, because everyone made fun of me for doing it. And what I later found out was people were using the room that the radio was in because it was one of the few rooms you could close the door without getting in trouble. <laughs> and they'd go down there and hook up. And that's why everybody was joining the radio club. So. <laughs> The things you learn afterwards, huh? That's funny. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned something else that is also a connection for me because I'm a physicist, and you said you got a minor in physics and a degree yeah. in business. Why a minor in physics? Well, I was doing the business thing. My dad strongly suggested I do business, and he wasn't wrong for saying that. But I have a technical side, and I wasn't. it wasn't being met. And then I started dating a girl who uh, was a physics major, and she was like, oh, you should just take some physics classes with me. And so I, I took a class with her. I'm like, oh, this is pretty fun. And then I kept taking more classes. And then eventually I got a minor in it because I just kept taking them. And I did the same thing with robotics, although I was, I think, two classes shy of getting a minor in robotics. So that was okay. It wasn't enough to stay another semester just to get a minor in robotics. Um, but I needed, I needed a different output than writing business plans and making PowerPoints. So what's the one class in college that sticks out in your mind? The, the one that was the, like, is there a turning point class or where, one where you remember the teacher? Yeah. Oh, yeah, there were so many. I think one of my coolest classes was actually called Advanced Mobile Robot Design. And what we did was uh, we entered, I went to Carnegie Mellon, and they're, they're pioneers in the robotics field. We entered the DARPA Grand Challenge back in, I think it was 2003. Wow. So that... For people who are unfamiliar with that, which I think is probably everybody, uh, DARPA said, we'll give you a million bucks if you can drive a vehicle autonomously from Los Angeles to Las Vegas in under <laughs> eight hours uh, without using roads. So we got this old 1986 H1 like surplus from the Army, and we made it autonomous. I mean, we had to do everything. We had to build maps. Like I would go out to the Barstow area on the weekends rent a car and just drive like 1500 miles in three days uh, to, to create maps of the area. I, I had this like sensor package on top of the, the car and I would just try to create a really high resolution map that we could use. So if the vehicle happened to be in that area, it could know with better confidence, like, yeah, you can definitely drive this road. Because uh, at the end of the day, it's a race, right? So uh, you're not given the path that you have to take until two hours prior to the race. So they'll give you a, a little CD with waypoints and it's every mile there's a waypoint and you have to get within like 500 feet of the waypoint or something. But how you get between waypoints is totally up to you. So we need to build this map and, you know, Google Earth wasn't around yet and well, at least I don't think it was. So we needed to do all this on our own. So we, you know, would hire planes with gigapixel cameras, which at the time was a really big deal. And we'd photograph the area and we uh, do a lot of mapping. But I also, I worked on the electrical side of the Hummer. I did the, the whole electrical bus system um, was something I was able to create. And it was really fun. So I just kept doing that class every semester over and over. And I did it for a couple of years. We ended up building two vehicles and we entered the race uh, two years. The first year, nobody won, but we got the furthest. And the second year, uh, we got second and third place. Wow. Actually, being from the L.A. area, knowing kind of what's between L.A. and Las Vegas. <laughs> Not a lot. <laughs> 
you must have driven a lot of dirt roads. Oh yeah, because we couldn't we couldn't go on paved roads. That was the rule of, of the competition. So every dirt road I could see, and it was usually like under power line. So I probably wasn't great to be under power like high power uh, <laughs> transmission lines that much. But it was a lot of fun, and plus it, it got me you know like the school would pay to fly me out there, so I got to fly, and uh, it was all around a really fun experience and, and rewarding. That's really interesting. Well, and I happen to know quite a bit about the area of I-15 having to come from San Bernardino up the hill. Do you have to navigate up through there? How do you get up through there? Or do you come up like the 14? Like, how, how did you get across? No, I would I would always land in Vegas. I'd rent, I'd usually rent a Land Rover and then just head south of, uh, like, past Pahrumpf and, and just get down there. Every I'd have a target area that the mapping team would give me that they thought was interesting or had a high likelihood of being chosen for the route. Uh, and then I would just kind of go there and look around and, and drive every dirt road I could find. And if there weren't dirt roads, I sometimes would make my own. But one thing that never failed was every weekend I blew a tire. So I was, <laughs> I was always out in the middle of the desert trying to change a tire. <laughs> Got old after a while. Hertz, I was, Hertz was always like, why do you every weekend you, you come back with a broken tire? I'm like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, so we're coming down to the end of the interview. And I'm definitely seeing a pattern of uh, driving and flying and wanting to go into space. You definitely like to go out and explore. I love that. With that backdrop, then, I'd really like to ask uh, this question because you've, you've had a chance to touch on lots of things in the digital age. So what does it mean to be educated? What does that word educated mean now in our digital age? That's a great question. I think... It's certainly changing from what it was 50 years ago to 20 years ago, even 10 years ago. I think there's a lot of disruptive education happening, and I think that's a really good thing. People are challenging the status quo, whether it's right or worth it to, to go to university to, or, or if you, you can just learn it all at the job site. I think, I think it, being educated is just figuring out what, what you need to know in a way that works for you. And everybody learns differently. And if that means going and sitting in a lecture and learning it, it's great. If that's hands-on experience from just going in your garage and building an airplane, that's, that's great too. I mean, it's, it's different for everyone. I love that response, actually. That's, that's fantastic. All right, so with that definition of uh, being educated, uh, what is the purpose of an education? Like why? Maybe I'll just ask you, why did you get educated? What was your purpose for getting an education? I had goals in life, and I got an education as uh, to help me achieve them. I, I think people go to school or, or learn, as we defined earlier, just to increase the number of tools in their tool bag to be successful and to do what they want in life. So uh, that's why. Excellent. Well, I think we're going to wrap it right there. Thank you so much, Jason. This was uh, a lot of fun. And if our audience wants to reach out to you and ask you questions, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, I think probably contact me on LinkedIn or Twitter would be good. Okay, well, we'll link those up in the show notes. Thank you so much, Jason. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. Jason's story is compelling. He ended up working for the front runner in space tourism simply because he wanted to go into space and he wouldn't take no for an answer. He's got curiosity and grit, both characteristics that we want to see in every teenager. If your teenager likes to build things, but you're worried that they need more challenge, sign them up for an inventor camp near you. Inventor camp is full of excitement and learning. We use powerful technology and 
We don't dumb down the difficulty. Students get immersed in real scenarios and versatile real tools such as 3D printers, computer programming, and electronics. Parents and students both tell us we can't believe how much we learned in just four days. To sign up for Inventor Camp, go to ttinvent.com slash inventor camp. That's T-T-I-N-V-E-N-T dot com forward slash I-N-V-E-N-T-O-R-C-A-M-P. If your teenagers love exploring just like Jason did, they'll love Inventor Camp.